Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. It's just after midday on Saturday the 13th of January 1923 and inside a spacious and charming Queen Anne Villa in Burnley Street, Richmond in Melbourne, an abusive relationship is about to come to a brutal end. In one of her home's many bedrooms, private nurse Hannah Mitchell has had enough of her ex-husband, a violent moocher named Frank Bonfilio. She surprises him with an automatic Colt revolver. Mitchell squeezes the trigger. Plaster flies as the bullet punches a hole in a wall. Bonfilio rushes her. Mitchell fires twice more. These bullets also go wide, but a fourth shot rips through his left forearm. Wounded, Bonfilio sags. Now, Hannah Mitchell shoots him in the back. He falls to the floor, between a wardrobe and the door. She fires again. One shot misses, but another bullet hits Bonfilio in his side. Mitchell storms away, leaving him bleeding and writhing on the floor. After a few minutes, she returns and points the gun at him one last time. I'm sorry, Frank, she says, but I have to do it. Mitchell walks out, locks the door behind her and leaves her ex-husband to die. But Frank Bonfilio isn't done yet. Hannah Mitchell's eighth bullet has missed him. He's wounded badly, but able to drag himself to his feet. Smearing his blood on the glass panes, Bonfilio escapes through an open window. He stumbles first into the home of a next-door neighbour, who's also a nurse, and then into the street where he hails a taxi to take him to nearby St Vincent's Hospital. Inside her Burnley Street home, Mitchell knows that if she's to avoid the gallows, she has to tell her side of the story first. She grabs the phone and calls the Richmond Police Station. I have shot a man, she says. With those five words, Nurse Hannah Mitchell will make headlines across Australia. And for the next five years, her alleged crimes will continue to shock the country. Yet, as I'll show here in detail for what I believe is the first time, her bloody misadventures began at least five years before she shot her ex-husband. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Murderous Mrs Mitchell. 
Melbourne was a place of sensational murders and mayhem in the era that also saw the rise of the flapper, jazz clubs and radio broadcasting. In 1921, the city was shocked by the horrific rape and murder of 12-year-old Alma Turchki in a city alley. The metropolis experienced a weekend of anarchy in 1923 and a random mass shooting in 1924, events we explored in previous episodes. Then there was gangster Squizzy Taylor, king of the underworld and Melbourne's public enemy number one for most of the decade. Yet even Squizzy wasn't as elusive as Hannah Mitchell, who, while forgotten now, was back then known as Melbourne's most notorious woman. On that Saturday afternoon, the 13th of January 1923, when a constable arrived at the scene of the crime, number 4 Burnley Street in Richmond, Hannah Mitchell handed over an empty revolver and led him through the house. She unlocked the door to the bedroom where she'd left her dying ex-husband. Oh my God, where is Bonfilio? she gasped. The constable found a straight razor on the floor. Senior Detective Frederick Piggott, known as Melbourne's Sherlock Holmes, who we met in the Botanic Gardens Massacre episode and whose photo graces this podcast's artwork, arrived with his partner, Detective Ted Ethel. When Detective Piggott asked why she had shot Bonfilio, Mitchell didn't answer and instead made a written statement. She wrote that she'd shot her ex-husband in self-defence. He had returned from Kalgoorlie unexpectedly just the day before and, in the past 24 hours, had beaten and insulted her. As was his usual form, Bonfilio had also demanded her money, £500 to cover gambling debts he'd racked up in Western Australia. That Saturday morning, he'd threatened to shoot her with his Colt automatic revolver. Mitchell wrote she'd grabbed the gun when he put it down and that she'd shot him when he came at her with the razor. Then she had called the police. Mitchell showed the police red marks on her arms and a mark on her back that she said were the result of Bonfilio's violence against her. Making a further search of the bedroom, the constable found a carving knife beneath a pillow. Detective Piggott, meanwhile, had been alerted to Frank Bonfilio being treated at St Vincent's Hospital. He and his partner went there to talk to him. Well, what happened to you this time? asked Piggott of the man he knew well from previous trouble. I have been shot, Bonfilio replied in his staccato Italian-accented English. Who shot you? Nurse Mitchell. Have you suffered much? asked Piggott. A great deal and I feel I am not going to get better. The wounded man had seen a priest and claimed he now needed to cleanse his soul in case he died. What caused the shooting? asked Piggott. Bonfilio said his ex-wife, nurse Hannah Mitchell, had ambushed him and shot him in cold blood because she wanted to make sure he never told anyone her terrible secret. But now he was going to spill and Detective Piggott and his partner were all ears. If you go into the bush, you will find a dead body of a woman, Bonfilio said. At the end of a road, you will see a gate with Yarra Bank on it, and through that, down into a gully, you will find the body. 
What Bonfilio claimed was that on or around the 14th of November 1922, a dark-haired woman in her late 20s had come to Mitchell seeking what was then euphemistically known as an illegal operation, that is, an abortion. The procedure had gone badly, really badly, and as her patient bled and suffered, Mitchell refused to call a doctor, resulting in the woman's death at about 2.30am on Sunday morning, the 19th of November. Mitchell had then demanded that Bonfilio help her get rid of the body and destroy the evidence. Feeling sorry for her, he said he'd agreed. Mitchell had also made accessories of her sister, Margaret Millwood, and her own daughter, 19-year-old Margaret Mitchell. The night the woman died, Bonfilio said, he and Mitchell had borrowed her son-in-law's Studebaker. They wrapped the naked corpse in a blanket, fastened with safety pins, and wedged it between the car's front and back seats. Very early on Monday morning, under cover of darkness, Bonfilio had driven Mitchell, her daughter and sister, out to Coldstream, on the northeast outskirts of Melbourne. There, he and Mitchell had unwrapped the body and dumped it in a gully, covering it with ferns and branches. She will be eaten by some animal in a few days, Mitchell had supposedly said. Nobody will know who she is if they find her. Back at the Richmond house, all of the dead woman's possessions were collected from the bedroom in which she died and disposed of, and all of her clothing was burnt. This was a sensational confession, but Detective Piggott knew he had to proceed with caution. Frank Bonfilio was a convicted criminal creep, with plenty of reasons to lie about his ex-wife, who he'd repeatedly violently assaulted during their short marriage. Mitchell's claim that she had shot him in self-defence might very well be true, but so might his story about her botching an abortion and callously disposing of her patient's body because, as the detective well knew, the nurse made good money from illegal operations. Until he gathered more information, Detective Piggott could only return to the Burnley Street house and arrest Hannah Mitchell on the obvious charge of shooting Frank Bonfilio with intent to murder. She was taken to the city watch house, where she'd be held until her court appearance the following morning. The woman behind bars in Melbourne's city watch house had come a long way and endured much in her 45 years on earth. Hannah Mitchell was born Hannah Elizabeth Thomas in Cheshire, England in October 1877. The eldest of six children, she grew up in Liverpool. In 1895, at age 18, she married an engraver named Arthur Marsden and the following year they had a daughter named Dorothy. But Arthur was sickly. On the day of the 1901 census, he was in a convalescent hospital and he died in April the following year, leaving Hannah a widow at just 24. Twelve months later, she married Irishman John Joseph Mitchell. Their first daughter, Margaret, who'd been nicknamed Queenie, came along in January 1904. Three other children followed, Patricia, John and David, so that by 1911 they were a family of seven. While John worked as an engine driver, from May 1908, Hannah was a certified midwife. 
The Mitchell family sailed from England for Australia on the ship Indara in early 1913, settling in Richmond, Melbourne, where they lived at 252 Swan Street. John got a job as an engine fitter. Hannah took work with a Richmond midwife named Nurse James. When her employer died, Hannah took over the practice. Though she gave herself the title of nurse, Hannah wasn't accredited with the Royal Victorian Trained Nurses Association. Nevertheless, she advertised herself as Nurse Mitchell in Melbourne's daily newspapers and offered the vague promise, all cases successfully treated. The Mitchells were a picture of Melbourne's aspirational middle class. Both husband and wife worked to keep a respectable house and raise their five children. Even the Great War didn't seem as though it could intrude. When that terrible conflict began in August 1914, John Mitchell wasn't able to serve because he was three years above the maximum age for enlistment. But in June 1915, after the disaster at Gallipoli and with it clear the war would drag on, enlistment requirements were relaxed with the maximum age raised to 45. So it was that on the 22nd of February 1916, John, scraping in at 44 years and 7 months of age, signed up to fight for king and country. Even though he volunteered, he didn't seem to exactly take to military training, reported in May 1916 as having deserted Campbellfield camp. After returning, Private John Joseph Mitchell, service number 5141, shipped out and joined the 22nd Battalion, which had been involved in some of the war's most horrific engagements in France since April 1916. In mid-September 1917, during the Battle of Passchendaele, the 22nd Battalion was assigned a frontline mission in Flanders. Over 48 hours, they were subjected to heavy German bombardment and took heavy casualties. On the 18th of September 1917, John Mitchell was sheltering in a house with other men from C Company when it was blown to pieces by an enemy shell. He and eight other soldiers were killed instantly. Back in Melbourne, Hannah Mitchell, a year shy of 40, had become a widow for the second time. In September 1919, Hannah Mitchell took Frank Bonfilio as her third husband. 14 years younger than Mitchell, he was kind of handsome and had a fine singing voice. Bonfilio had been born in Genoa and come to Australia as part of a touring opera company before working sporadically as a marble mason and motor mechanic. But he was better known for his criminal activities than for his artistic or auto-repair careers. In 1913, Bonfilio had been running an illegal casino in Fitzroy when it was subjected to a sensational raid that made headlines across Australia. This raid resulted in him facing 12 gaming and grog charges, with the cops also finding he kept a loaded revolver beneath his bed. Bonfilio got off with a £50 fine. Since then, he'd supposedly worked as one of Squizzy Taylor's henchmen. But the crimes he was actually convicted for in 1920 through to 1922, they were simply cowardly acts of violence against his wife 
Hannah Mitchell. The worst, where he beat her savagely after hijacking her horse buggy on a suburban street, had seen him jailed for six months. During this imprisonment, Hannah Mitchell petitioned for divorce on the grounds of cruelty. But her feelings for Bonfilio were tortured. She still sent him mawkish love letters. And after he was released from prison in mid-1922, the couple had rekindled their volatile romance only for it to end in a blaze of gunfire six months later. Now, on the afternoon of Saturday the 13th of January 1923, Hannah Mitchell was herself behind bars and aware that more than ever her fate was tied to Frank Bonfilio. Whether she lived or died could well hinge on what he was telling police, how much he was believed, and how their relationship would be perceived in court. Senior Detective Frank Piggott and his men were already at the cold stream gully that Frank Bonfilio had described. There, they didn't find a body. But they did find broken and uprooted ferns, drag marks and piled branches that suggested someone had been dumped there and recently moved. Back in Melbourne, they checked the Studebaker owned by Mitchell's son-in-law and found a floor mat that bore dark stains that looked like blood. Even more sensationally, Piggott's investigations turned up a secret informant who told him that the dead woman's decomposing remains had recently been put into two sacks and dumped in a body of water. When these bags were found, the informant said, one would contain her torso and the other one, her head. How did the informant know all of this? Because Hannah Mitchell had told her that she'd moved the rotting body and that the head had fallen off during this grisly business. For the next few weeks, police and black trackers searched the hills and waterways of Lilydale near Coldstream. Frustratingly, they didn't find the body. But Detective Piggott thought he might know who they were looking for. Based on Bonfilio's description, Mitchell's alleged victim could be Bertha Coughlin. Bertha Coughlin was 28 years old, tall and slender, with deep-set brown eyes and a great mass of coal-black hair. She lived with her father John on a remote homestead on the Omeo Plains in northeastern Victoria. Previously a happy woman, Bertha had, for the past five years, had a pretty rough time. In 1914, her older brother James had been one of the first from the district to sign up for the Great War. On the 25th of April 1915, he'd landed at Gallipoli and suffered a terrible bullet wound that first day. Returning home, his friends and neighbours in Omeo had presented him with a gold medal, stamped Coglin, that commemorated his service and his sacrifice. For the next two and a half years, James fought for his life, undergoing numerous surgeries before he finally died as a result of his wounds. Before he passed away, he gave his prized medal to his little sister. Bertha had it mounted as a brooch and wore it close to her heart. Bad times continued for Bertha. Her mother, Sarah, died in late 1920 
And in early 1922, she and her fiancé Arthur Lemon, also from the Omeo area, broke off their engagement. Bertha was said to be so upset, she cut her wedding dress to shreds. Emotionally bereft, she took to wandering away from home for up to a week at a time, reappearing without explaining where she'd been. During this period, dental problems meant Bertha needed to have most of her teeth removed and she was forced to wear dentures. Then, in the spring of 1922, Bertha came down with such a bad ear condition that she required treatment in Melbourne. In early November, she and her father John went to the city so she could see a doctor. After her ear was fixed, she planned to take a holiday, seeing friends around Melbourne and in Gippsland before returning home in time for Christmas. Her father went back to the farm, leaving Bertha to continue treatment in Melbourne, staying with her aunt in Dandenong and at the Bull and Mouth Hotel in Bourke Street in the centre of the city. Bertha had left the Bull and Mouth Hotel on the 14th of November and no one had heard from her since. Towards the end of November, her family started to make inquiries with her Melbourne friends but got no answers. And when Bertha didn't return home for Christmas as planned, they alerted Melbourne police that she was missing. On the 19th of January 1923, Senior Detective Frederick Piggott interviewed Nurse Hannah Mitchell at her home in Richmond. Mitchell confirmed that she had borrowed her son-in-law's car, but only so Frank Bonfilio could use it to go and party with some of his Italian mates. Mitchell denied ever having been to Coldstream and said there had never been a corpse in her house. She said she'd heard the stories about a dead woman and a dumped body, but they were a lot of silly lies. As Piggott's investigations continued, he had to deal with an attempt to silence his star witness. On the 27th of January, a young crook named William Quinn approached Frank Bonfilio while he was sitting with a woman at a Lonsdale Street cafe. "'How are you, Frank?' Quinn asked. You're not going to squeal, are you? You won't put your wife away. Frank replied, she meant to kill me. Quinn wasn't impressed. I've been shot at once by my wife and twice by another man, but I didn't squeal. How are you for money, Frank? Then came the offer. Quinn reckoned he'd demand £500 from Mitchell to square the jury, money that he would then split 50-50 with Bonfilio. Quinn told him he'd similarly rigged the jury for Dr James Duncan, who, after an abortion sting orchestrated by Detective Piggott, had been found not guilty in a trial two years earlier. They should square the jury, Quinn said, because Mitchell was sure to do it anyway and walk free. Then came what seemed the real reason for this approach. Quinn said Bonfilio should testify that he didn't remember what he'd said about being shot by his ex-wife. Don't squeal on Mitchell, as she's your wife, Quinn said. I will go out and see her on Sunday night, as the Jacks won't be about. During this conversation, Quinn told Bonfilio that he didn't know Hannah Mitchell, but this appeared very much like her roundabout way of paying off her ex-husband to shut him up. 
Why else would Quinn offer Bonfilio £250 and suggest he forget his evidence? If Quinn was going to square the jury, he could do it alone and keep all the money. And if he succeeded in tampering with the jury, then why would it matter what Bonfilio said in court? Mitchell certainly had the criminal and legal connections to make such an approach. Her bail bond on the shooting charge had been placed by Clara Gavey, whose husband Joseph was a gangster and one of Squizzy Taylor's underworld associates. Dr James Duncan, the abortionist who'd walked free in 1920, well, he'd been defended by Hannah Mitchell's good friend and her regular and current legal representative, city solicitor Percy Ridgway. Ridgway also acted for criminals associated with Squizzy Taylor, including Joseph Gavey. What William Quinn didn't know as he made his bribery offer was that the woman sitting at Frank Bonfilio's cafe table wasn't some random floozy. She was a plain-clothes policewoman placed there because her boss, Detective Piggott, had suspected there'd be an attempt just like this. Quinn was arrested and charged with trying to dissuade and hinder a witness. Remarkably, he'd be found not guilty by a jury who believed him when he confessed to saying everything that the police alleged, but claimed he'd been just joking. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. By the end of January, senior detective Frederick Piggott was frustrated because his case had stalled. He had the testimony of a shot-up crook saying his ex-wife had tried to murder him to cover up her role in the death of a young woman. He had a missing woman who fit the description of the alleged victim. He had a blood-stained car and a remote gully location that looked like it had been the dumping place for a body. He had a secret informant telling him the woman's corpse had been moved and thrown into water. Piggott had a lot, but not nearly enough to make a case for murder. Then, on Friday the 2nd of February, 1923, he finally got the breakthrough he so desperately needed, and it resulted from an incredible coincidence. Late the previous evening, a man had called police to say he'd seen someone stop in a motor van on the Anderson Street Bridge over the Yarra River and throw a coffin-like box into the water below. On the morning of February the 2nd at 9am, police dragged the river at that spot. What they pulled up were parts of a stolen motorcycle, including the engine. 
These motorcycle parts showed no signs of rust and it seemed obvious they were what had been tossed from the bridge the night before. But taking no chances, the police continued dragging to make sure a coffin hadn't been dropped into the river. At 2pm they pulled up a sack tied with wire which split open as they hauled it onto the riverbank, disgorging stones, mud and another sack. Cutting this open, the police were hit by the terrible stench of rotting flesh. Spilling out of the sack was a headless torso so decomposed as to be almost liquefied. A smaller sack contained the mostly toothless skull of a woman with long dark hair. The discovery was a sensation across Australia. Headless body in Yarra, nude girl dragged up by police, was how Melbourne's Herald brought the story to its readers. Headless and nude, woman's body in Yarra, extraordinary circumstances, screamed Sydney's The Sun. Perth's Mirror newspaper went with Yarra yields up dead, horrifying story of beheaded girl. As gruesome as this discovery was, it matched exactly what Piggott's secret informant had said he would find. While the remains were impossible to identify at that moment, Piggott knew this was the woman who'd been dumped at Coldstream because the sack also contained fern species identical to those he'd seen in that lonely gully. On Friday the 2nd of February 1923, three weeks after she'd shot Frank Bonfilio, Hannah Mitchell was arrested by Detective Piggott for the murder of Bertha Coughlin. Her daughter, Queenie, was also charged with being an accessory after the fact. When Piggott and his men came to arrest Mitchell's sister, Margaret Millwood, at her home in St Kilda, she asked to talk to him alone. I want to tell you the truth, Mr Piggott. What will I do? He advised her to listen to her conscience. She asked if she'd be charged. He said it was likely. But he didn't know if she'd go to jail. She then said, It is true about the girl dying in the house and her body being taken away to the hills. Piggott learned that Millwood and Queenie had disposed of the dead woman's possessions, including a distinctive gold medal brooch stamped with the name Coglin, along with dentures and medicine bottles, and that Queenie had burnt the woman's clothes. Millwood was arrested as an accomplice after the fact, though she would agree to testify against her sister, Hannah Mitchell. Over the next two weeks, Piggott tried to keep Mitchell in custody, arguing she'd self-harm to avoid trial, but she was eventually released on a £1,000 bond, again posted by Clara Gavey. Piggott contacted Bertha's father, John, who came to Melbourne with two photos of his daughter. He was too upset to view the remains, but he was present when Bonfilio was shown 40 photos of young women and picked out both photos of Bertha as the woman who died in Mitchell's house. Piggott also investigated a mysterious telegram from a woman named Elsie Higgins that had arrived for Bertha at her aunt's place just an hour after she'd left that house for the last time. Staying at Victoria Coffee Palace till tomorrow, come town today if possible, it read. Police learned that Bertha did have a friend named Elsie Higgins, but that she hadn't sent this telegram. 
On the 13th of February, police arrested the man who had sent the message. He was from the Omeo area, but wasn't Bertha's former fiancé, Arthur Lemon. He was instead a married horse trainer named Thomas Cook, who was a long-standing friend of the Coughlin family. Why he'd sent the mystery message under a false name would be revealed in the inquest into the death of Bertha Coughlin, which began on the 28th of February, 1923. A police cordon was needed outside the city morgue to hold back the crowd of onlookers. Frank Bonfilio and Margaret Millwood arrived with Detective Piggott and other officers. Hannah Mitchell and her daughter Queenie turned up in a handsome royal blue taxi, leading Truth newspaper to dub the accused murderer the Lady of the Blue Limousine. She was again represented by solicitor Percy Ridgway. The coroner told the inquest that the body retrieved from the Yarra River was female, though she was too decomposed to determine the cause of death. She'd been in the water two or three weeks, but as the corpse had been infested with maggots, it was clear that the river wasn't her first resting place. The head, he said, had not been hacked off, none of the vertebrae were damaged, but had simply fallen off due to decomposition when the body was moved. The skull had few teeth, which, a dentist testified, matched the extractions he'd performed on Bertha Coughlin. Details of her pregnancy emerged during the inquest. After her father went back home, Bertha had supposedly sent a letter to her married friend, Thomas Cook, asking him to come meet her because she was in trouble. Thomas Cook told the court that he'd asked a friend if he knew anyone who might be able to help him help Bertha. This friend gave him a letter of introduction to a Melbourne woman named Mrs Lillian Mueller. Cook told the inquest that, supposedly at Bertha's instruction, he was to contact her at her aunt's place via a telegram he was to sign Elsie Higgins. While his telegram had missed her, he'd nevertheless run into Bertha in Melbourne and set her up with Mrs Mueller. Thomas Cook wanted the court to believe that he'd helped Bertha out of the goodness of his heart and that she'd told him her trouble had not been caused by her former fiancé. He admitted to giving her £10 for a good cause, but denied being anything more to Bertha than a friend. The Bull and Mouth Hotel's proprietress, Mrs Maguire, mother of Australia's future film star, Mary Maguire, testified that she had seen Bertha in her hotel on numerous occasions and twice in the company of a tall man. On the morning of the 14th of November, Mrs Maguire found Bertha crying in a public sitting room. She told Mrs Maguire that her ears were better now, but that she was very worried and she could not sleep at night. Bertha left the Bull and Mouth and that afternoon met Mrs Mueller, introducing herself as Miss Eastwood. Mrs Mueller told the court that she took the woman, who she now identified from photos as Bertha Coughlin, to Hannah Mitchell's house in Richmond. Three days later, on Friday night, Mrs Mueller checked on Bertha and saw her in a double bed with another girl. During that visit, Bertha told her she'd paid Mitchell £20. Mrs Mueller took this to mean she'd paid for the operation they had arranged. 
Bertha asked Mrs Mueller to come back and see her on Monday. When Mrs Mueller did so, Hannah Mitchell took her to see a different girl. Told this wasn't the woman she'd come to visit, Mitchell then remembered that the patient Mrs Mueller was inquiring after had already left for her home in the country. Mrs Mueller testified that she had at this point been offered £5 by Mitchell, which she had not accepted. Nor, she said, had she known why it was offered, and she certainly wasn't an advance agent for an abortionist. As damning as Cook and Mueller's testimony had been, the inquest's most sensational evidence was given, of course, by Frank Bonfilio. He said that after going to the races with Mitchell on the afternoon of Saturday the 18th of November, they had gone back to the Burnley Street house that night. One of the girls in the number three bedroom had taken a bad turn. She was bleeding heavily and he and Mrs Millwood carried her to the bathroom. There, Mitchell performed an operation after which she said, I can't do any more for her. I'm tired. I think she is gone. The woman, who he identified from a photo as Bertha Coughlin, was in and out of consciousness. She was taken to her bed and given some brandy and water. A doctor couldn't do more than I have, Mitchell claimed. Why didn't you get a doctor in the first place, Bonfilio said he'd asked. Don't worry me, she told him. Let me rest. Bonfilio claimed Mitchell had told him to come to bed. Casting himself as the hero, he reckoned he'd said, I cannot leave the girl like this. He and Millwood remained with Bertha. When her breathing quickened, he went to Mitchell. She supposedly said, I am tired. I want to rest. He insisted she go with him to the bedroom. There, they found Bertha had died. It was now around 2.30am on Sunday morning. She's gone, Mitchell said, covering the dead girl's face with a sheet and adding that Bonfilio should get to bed and have a rest. Later that Sunday, Mitchell had, Bonfilio said, proposed disposing of the body. That night, they had borrowed the Studebaker, driven out to Coldstream early the following morning and dumped the corpse. Bonfilio soon after took off to Kalgoorlie with £40 in his pocket that had been given to him by Mitchell. He claimed he'd gone there to set up a business for her, but that she'd cut him off financially and left him to starve. That's when he'd started sending telegrams asking for money. On Friday the 12th of January 1923, Bonfilio returned to Melbourne. He said that she said to him, Frank, I don't want you to have anything over me all my life. I might as well tell you that I brought the girl home and burnt the body. He said she'd wanted to marry him again, which would have meant he couldn't be compelled to testify against her. He told her he wouldn't marry her again until he had enough money to spend on her. Then, the next thing he knew, Mitchell was shooting at him. Bonfilio had a compelling story, but he wasn't the most credible witness. He claimed he hadn't known the nature of Mitchell's business until two weeks after they'd been married in 1919. That wasn't believable in the least. His new wife's Burnley Street house was like a hospital ward 
many of its 14 bedrooms usually occupied by two or more girls and women preparing for or recovering from their procedures. Bonfilio also claimed that once Mitchell had confessed the truth about her business, his moral outrage caused him to leave her and that she'd induced him to stay in the marriage by promising to give up the work. Clearly, she hadn't, and he hadn't cared, particularly after she gave him a brand new car worth £550 as a wedding present. Cad that he was, he sold it four months later. There were also plenty of reasons for Bonfilio to lie about Mitchell. He'd been sent to prison twice for assaulting her, the last time for six months. It was also suggested that his telegrams from Kalgoorlie were attempts to blackmail her about the body, which he referred to in these messages as the parcel. Bonfilio hadn't been charged in relation to Bertha Coughlin's death or the disposal of her body. And if that was to remain the case, he needed the blame to be squarely on his ex-wife. But while Bonfilio was a liar with reasons to lie, the story he told was backed up by other witnesses. A friend of Mitchell's, Mrs Florence Spicer, testified to having been at the Burnley Street house on that Saturday afternoon and seeing Bertha in pain. Are you very ill? Mrs Spicer asked. Bertha said she was in such pain that I wish I were a little bird and a cat would come swallow me up. When Mrs. Spicer returned the next day, Mitchell told her the girl had died. Mrs. Spicer asked if she'd called the police. Mitchell said there was no point. Mrs. Spicer claimed she'd said, Fancy a poor girl dying and none of her relatives knowing where she is. Mitchell replied, It's no good informing her relations. It would only put me away. Mrs. Spicer said she'd seen Bertha's effects including the gold medal brooch, while Margaret Millwood was cleaning the room in which she'd died. Mitchell, Mrs Spicer told the court, had pleaded with her to keep the death a secret, and she had agreed. If anything comes out, I will plead guilty to everything, Mitchell told her. I alone am to blame in this case. Mrs Spicer said Mitchell asked her to go and see a man and offer him three or four hundred pounds to move the body. She did, but he refused to be involved. When Mrs Spicer got back to the Burnley Street house, her friend's demeanour had changed. Mrs Mitchell said to me, Keep your mouth closed. People who open their mouths can be easily silenced. That Sunday, she'd also seen Millwood crying because she didn't want to accompany Mitchell, Bonfilio and Queenie for a drive. Mrs Spicer then said she'd heard the car leave around 2 or 3 the next morning. When the foursome came back at about 7.30am, Queenie had supposedly said, Thank goodness that is over. It has gone to a place where it will never be found. Subsequently, Mrs Spicer said, Mitchell had started to receive threatening anonymous letters and had accused her of sending them. Mrs Spicer denied it and Mitchell seemed to believe her, keeping her in confidence when she said that her solicitor Percy Ridgway had advised her to remarry Bonfilio to shut his mouth. Mrs. Spicer told the court that because Mitchell had threatened her, she told the police she knew nothing the first time she was questioned by them, before later giving a statement about everything she'd seen and heard. Another witness, Mrs. Emily Tucker of Paran, 
told the inquest that a woman calling herself Bertha Coughlin had come to her house seeking board and lodging on the 18th of November. This woman, she said, told her she was in a lot of pain following certain treatment for a certain state of health. Mrs Tucker was unable to accommodate her and the woman calling herself Bertha left, talking to a man who'd been waiting for her out the front on the street. Confusingly, in court, Mrs Tucker said the photograph of Bertha Coughlin that she'd been shown was not the woman who'd called on her and the man out on the street was not Thomas Cook. What was really shocking was what Mrs Tucker said next, that on the 22nd of February, just a week ago, Hannah Mitchell had visited her to offer her £400 to change her books so that they recorded that Bertha Coughlin had stayed with her on the 20th of November. She described what she had done to Coughlin, Mrs Tucker said in evidence, and told me that the unexpected had happened, but she did not know whether it was due to a mistake or carelessness. She said that two of them were going to put the blame on her, and she would put the blame onto them. She wanted to cause a doubt in the coroner's mind and so get out of the trouble. Mrs Tucker's husband testified to corroborate his wife's story. This alleged attempt to change the date was significant because it would place Bertha alive somewhere the day after the prosecution alleged she'd died. Mitchell's son-in-law, Maurice Torby, testified that she'd come to him late on the Sunday night and insisted on borrowing his car. He agreed that the bloodstained mat shown to the court was the mat that had been in the vehicle. Margaret Millwood, Mitchell's sister, testified nervously. She identified Bertha's photo as the girl who'd been at the house. She also said she'd seen a fetus and afterbirth in the masses of blood on Bertha Coughlin's sheets. She corroborated Bonfilio's story, saying that the bathroom operation had gone on for 30 to 45 minutes and that Mitchell had said she could do no more and that she hadn't called a doctor. Millwood also testified to what she knew of the body being removed from the gully, which was that her sister had asked her to find some string to tie a sack, but instead she'd found electrical wire, the same wire found securing the bag from the river and the same wire exhibit produced in the court. Millwood's 15-year-old son, Albert, who also lived at 4 Burnley Street, said on the Saturday night he'd been asked to fetch brandy to hand into the bathroom where his mother, Mitchell and Bonfilio were gathered. The next morning he heard Mitchell say, we will have to get it away. And later that night he saw the Studebaker in the backyard with Bonfilio and Queenie in the front seats and his mother and Mitchell in the back seats. He told the court, there was something in a blanket on the floor in the back of the car and I said, Fancy having that bumping against you all the time. And shortly afterwards, the motor car drove away. Sometime later, Nurse Mitchell told me to say nothing about the matter. Queenie Mitchell also told me the same thing. She said if the police came and questioned me, I was to deny it. A government analyst told the court that samples of fronds and gum leaves taken from the sacks from the river were identical to those found in the Coldstream Gully. 
Detective Frederick Piggott testified to his role in the investigation and recounted Bonfilio's confession and described a visit they made to the Gully site together on the 17th of January. In all, 30 witnesses testified and 37 exhibits were produced, including a replica of the brooch and the long dark hair found with the skull in the sack, which witnesses said was very similar to Bertha Coughlin's hair. Nevertheless, Hannah Mitchell's solicitor, Percy Ridgway, tried to introduce the question of identity, but the coroner wouldn't permit it, saying he was satisfied that on or about 19th of November, Bertha Evelyn Coughlin died from the effect of a criminal operation performed by Hannah Elizabeth Mitchell, and he found Mitchell guilty of the willful murder of the deceased. The coroner noted that he believed there was no intention to kill, but as the death was alleged to have taken place because of the performance of a felonious act, he had no option but to commit Hannah Mitchell to stand trial on the charge of murder. If Hannah Mitchell was found guilty, the judge would have no alternative but to hand down the death sentence. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. To hear the rest of Hannah Mitchell's story, download parts two and three of this episode. Supporting Forgotten Australia is easy and it doesn't cost a thing. Just leave a review or rating on the podcast platform you use, which will help the show reach more people. And don't forget to subscribe so you get every episode as soon as it's released. If you want to see photos and newspaper articles about the Hannah Mitchell case, head over to ForgottenAustralia.com. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land that's traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.